We are continuing our study on Hebrews called Jesus, the mediator of a new and better covenant or a new and better testament. And this is teaching number five, the heavenly calling to the New Testament of grace. So in this teaching over the next few weeks, we're going to begin a study in Hebrews chapter three, verse one through Hebrews chapter four, verse 11. And it's important if we're going to understand Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 11, just like in every other part of Hebrews we've studied and will study, we've got to know the historical situation behind the verses that is prompting the writer of Hebrews to write this letter to the Hebrew people, to the Jewish people. So the writer of Hebrews is writing around AD 65 when the Jewish people were under tremendous pressure to reject Jesus and the New Testament of grace, they were under pressure to refuse to rest in Jesus and the New Testament of grace. They were under tremendous pressure to remain loyal to Moses and the Old Testament of law. And they were under great pressure to return to loyalty to Moses and to the Old Testament of law. So with this understanding, the writer of Hebrews then educates his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters about the New Testament of grace and encourages none of them to have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, this sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God in the context of Hebrews is rejecting the grace of Jesus refusing to rest in the grace of Jesus and the finished work of Jesus on the cross while remaining with or returning to the law of Moses. So this background of the historical situation, historical situation existing in AD 65, let's read Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it reads this way, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Now, that's what we're going to zero in tonight on is that part of Hebrews 3.1. But I want to go ahead and read all of it to put it into its smaller context. But there's a, a much wider context as well that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. And then starting in Hebrews Three, two. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful to all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all of God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Now, we're going to look at this first word in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, which is therefore. Therefore. Now, what is he referring to when he says therefore? Well, he's referring back to Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2, so that everything he's written in Hebrews 1 and everything he's written in Hebrews 2, he's calling their attention to focus on what he just wrote about Jesus in Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. So the therefore, the content of that word would be because of what is written in Hebrews 1 and 2 about Jesus, 
Hebrews 1, Jesus being the Son of God, that's 100% God. Hebrews 2, Jesus being the Son of Man, that's 100% man. So because of what is written in Hebrews 1 and 2 about Jesus being the Son of God, who the Jewish scriptures predicted would come, and that Jewish scriptures confirm as Jesus, therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Therefore, because Jesus provided purification from sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty, that's Hebrews 1, 3. Therefore, fix your eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is greater than the angels as God. That's Hebrews 1. And for a little while was lower than the angels. That's completely human. That's Hebrews 2. Because Jesus is greater than the angels as God and because Jesus is lower than the angels as a human for a little while. That was for until AD 33 after his resurrection and after his ascension. He was a human for 33 years for a little while. Therefore, because Jesus is completely God and completely man, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And then because of what is written in Hebrews 1 and 2 about the great salvation that was first announced by the Lord, he's saying because of this great salvation, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Because of what the reader of Hebrews in AD 65 heard from those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and who saw the miracles of Jesus, therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And again, we looked at that a couple weeks ago in one of our teachings. And then because Jesus became human to bring restoration, sanctification, liberation, propitiation, and to relate to their limitations and temptations, that's from last week's study, therefore, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. So he's telling them, fix your thoughts on Jesus, not Moses. In Hebrews 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to persuade the Jewish people to establish their thoughts on Jesus and not the angels. However, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to persuade the Jewish people to establish their thoughts on Jesus and not Moses. So in our next teaching, we're going to look a little further about what the writer of Hebrews writes about when he compares and contrasts Jesus and Moses. That will be Hebrews 3, 1 through probably 5, five or 6, and, and, and on into the rest of the chapter. But tonight in this study, we're looking at the Hebrews 3, 1, which reads, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling Fix your thoughts on Jesus. I want us to look at this phrase the writer uses. In Greek, it's really one word. When it comes out in the English language, it comes out brothers and sisters. But he says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Now, who are the holy brothers and sisters of the writer in Hebrews? Brothers and sisters is the Greek word for, for Adelphos. In the context, it's referring to Jewish people, to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people. A lot of times when we read the phrase brothers and sisters in the Bible, we automatically assume, well, that's talking about my Christian brothers and sisters. Well, what we're going to see in some verses that we're about to look at is that the phrase brothers and sisters doesn't always refer to my Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to see that Sometimes the word Adelphos 
refers to those of the Jewish race as brothers and sisters who are believers. Sometimes the word Adelphos refers to the Jewish race, and of that race, some of them are unbelievers. And then other times it refers to the Jewish race who those who are in the audience of the brothers and sisters are about to have the opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to believe in the new covenant that he's established in his blood. Let's take a look in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. This is out of the Christian Standard Bible. Paul uses the word Adelphos to refer to his race, the Jewish people, who were unbelievers in Jesus. And I'm going to show you how this is going to relate back to Hebrews 3.1 momentarily. But in Romans 9.1 through 4, Paul uses the word Adelphos, the same word used for brothers and sisters in Hebrews 3.1. And when Paul uses the word Adelphos in Romans 9.1 through 4, he's referring to his brothers and sisters within the Jewish race. They have the same bloodline but those who he's referring to are unbelievers in Jesus, which shows us and, and reveals to us that every time the word brothers and sisters is used, it's not referring every time to my Christian brothers and sisters. Let's look what Paul writes in Romans 9, 1 through 4. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, that's Adelphos, my own flesh and blood, they are Israelites. These brothers and sisters he's referring to in Romans 9, 1 through 4 are unbelievers. They share the blood of Jewish people. They're all Israelites. They're all Hebrews. They're, and Paul's in great pain because there are some of his brothers and sisters who are Jewish brothers and sisters who weren't believers in Jesus. So keep that in mind when we go back to Hebrews 3.1. In Romans 10.1 through 5, Paul uses the word Adelphos to refer to believers who are of the Jewish faith. So in Romans 9.1 through 4, he used the word Adelphos to refer to unbelievers who are Jewish people, and in Romans 10, 1 through 5, he's using the word Adelphos to refer to believers who are of the Jewish race. And he says this in Romans 10, 1 through 5, Brothers and sisters, that's believers in Jesus, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, these are those Paul identified in Romans 9, 3 through 4 as his unbelieving brothers and sisters, all right? So, brothers and sisters, that's believers in Jesus, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they, these are Paul's unbelieving Jewish brothers and sisters in Romans 9, 3 through 4, that's who the they are, is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. So, we had Jewish brothers and sisters who were both believers and unbelievers. The they in this verse refers to those who are unbelievers. At the beginning of the verse, it refers to brothers and sisters who are believers. They were zealous for God. The Jewish people were zealous for God. And Paul's writing about this in verse 2, but their zeal is not based upon knowledge. They rejected the new covenant. They rejected the person of Christ. They rejected the blood of Christ. They were zealous for God, but they rejected 
the one God sent, the Messiah, the Christ. Paul says, for I can testify about them, my unbelieving brothers and sisters who are Jewish, that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness of God, which is a righteousness that comes by faith, and they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were seeking to become righteous before God through the law of Moses, through following the law of Moses and practicing the law of Moses rather than through faith in Christ. Verse 4, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness by the law when he writes, the person who does these things will live by them, verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith. So what we see here is Paul had brothers and sisters who were Jewish, who were believers in Christ, and he had brothers and sisters who were Jewish, who were unbelievers in Jesus. They were seeking to establish a righteousness by the law rather than through faith in Jesus, the unbelieving brothers and sisters of Paul. So keep that in mind when we go back momentarily to Hebrews 3.1. All right, so in Acts 10.38, Paul refers to Jewish people who were yet to believe in Jesus, but were hearing Paul explain to them the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, and then he exhorted them to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And he refers to this group of Jewish believers who are unbelievers, yet they're about to get the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus. He writes in Acts 10.38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that's Adelphos, same Greek word of Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified or experiences or receives complete forgiveness of sin and complete cleansing from sin for all eternity. Everyone who believes is justified through him from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So when Paul uses the word Adelphos, sometimes he's referring to those of his Jewish race as brothers and sisters who are believers. Sometimes he's referring to them as unbelievers, and sometimes as those who are being given the opportunity to believe. So in Hebrews 3.1, the writer calls these brothers and sisters holy brothers and sisters, So does the word holy refer to the writer's Jewish brothers and sisters who come to faith in Jesus, their believers, or does the word holy refer to God's identification of the nation of Israel as a holy nation, as a set-apart nation, as a set-apart people to display the true God to the peoples of the world? That's my view. That's how I think it's being used in this verse in Hebrews 3.1. I don't think the writer of Hebrews is using the word holy to refer to brothers and sisters who come to faith in Christ. The context doesn't really allow for that. Later on, he uses the word holy to mean sanctified or cleansed by the blood of Christ through faith in Christ. We've been sanctified or we've been made holy. But I think it's a different use of the word holy here than we find in the upcoming chapters of Hebrews. This word holy is seen in the Jewish scriptures as referring to the people of Israel being set apart by God. And that's how I think the writer of Hebrews is using this word in Hebrews 3.1. 
Look in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. This is the NIV, and it reads this way. The writer of Leviticus is, is communicating to the nation of Israel. It says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. The key is I have set you apart from the nations. That's what holy is here. I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Now, the phrase you are to be holy to me is a poor translation by the NIV. The translation should read this. You have been made holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. You have been made holy to me. Now, the literal standard Bible and Young's literal translation gets this translation right. The literal standard, standard version, as well as Young's literal translation, it translates Leviticus 20, 26 like this. And you have been made holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy. I separate you from the peoples to become mine. So that's, that's the correct translation there. That They're not seeking to achieve a holy standing before God. God has made them holy in the sense that he separated them from the nations of the world. He's not talking about an internal cleansing of sin when he says that the people of Israel are holy in, in the Jewish scriptures. What he's saying is, when I call you holy nation of Israel, it means that I have set you apart from the other nations to demonstrate to them who I am, to display to them who the real God is. Deuteronomy 7, 6, now the NIV gets it right here, reads it this way. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his prized possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth or all the nations on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14, 2 says this. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So we're seeking to understand the writer's use of the word holy in Hebrews 3.1. Does the word holy refer to Jewish brothers and sisters who've come to faith in Jesus and they're believers in Jesus? Or... Does the word holy refer to God's identification of the nation of Israel as a holy nation, set apart from all the other nations, a set apart people who are to display the true God to the nations of the world? I believe that the context of this verse, which is Hebrews 3.1 through Hebrews 4.11, that's the context of, of Hebrews 3.1. It, it goes all the way through 4.11. So in order to really figure out what Hebrews 3.1 is about and these holy brothers and sisters, I've got to read all of this before I make any kind of decision on it. But I believe the context of these verses that's of Hebrews 3.1, which is Hebrews 3.1 through 4.11, I believe the context points to the use of the word holy as a reference to the writers, Jewish brothers and sisters, who as a nation have been set apart to be separate from the other nations so that they could be a light to the nations of the world. Some of these holy brothers and sisters are believers, some are not believers, and some are in the process of evaluating the information of the book of Hebrews to determine whether or not they're going to become believers. But they're holy because they, they as a nation have been set apart 
by God from the other nations. And that's how I believe the writer of Hebrews is using this word holy in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, these Jewish people, these Hebrew people, they're being pressured to reject Jesus and the New Testament of grace. They're being pressured to refuse to rest in Jesus and the New Testament of grace. They are being pressured to remain loyal to Moses and the Old Testament of law. And they're being pressured to return to loyalty to Moses and to the Old Testament of law. So let's pick back up in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. We'll finish verse 6 next week and move into the rest of Hebrews 3 next week. But Hebrews 3, 1 says this, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. So I want to stop here and look at this phrase, heavenly calling, and then we're going to look at the word share. So these holy brothers and sisters share in the heavenly calling. So the question we want to ask is, what is the heavenly calling that the Hebrew people share in. Now, in order to understand what this heavenly calling is, we've got to look back into Hebrews and we've got to look ahead into Hebrews to see if this word heaven has been used before it was used in Hebrews 3.1, and then how is it used after Hebrews 3.1? It's going to give us a lot of insight into what the heavenly calling is. What we're going to see is the heavenly calling is the calling of God on the Hebrew people to put their faith in Jesus and come into this New Testament of grace. The calling is holy, but they've got to decide whether they're going to answer the call of God to embrace the new covenant of grace by placing their faith in Jesus. All right, so let's look at what this heavenly calling is. Let's start with Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, that's the Jewish people and the writers, past ancestors. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, Isaiah and the other prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, that's the Jewish people. He's writing in AD 65. He's writing a real letter to a real group of Jewish people. It's an evangelistic letter to me seeking to provide the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, seeking to provide the evidence that his blood has established the new covenant or the New Testament. And he's calling for a response from those who are reading the letter to place their faith in Jesus and to come out of the Old Testament of law and into the New Testament of grace. So in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he, the Son, had provided purification for sins, that's what the entire book of Hebrews is about, explaining that the Son has provided purification for sins. After he, the son, provided purification for sins, the son sat down at the right hand of the majesty, and look where the son sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
Sat down means that the finished work of the sun, it means the finished work of the sun, the, the work of the sun is complete. And the heavenly calling in the book of Hebrews is for the people of, of Israel to stop working under the law of Moses for the purification of sins and start resting in the fact that Jesus, as the Son, has provided eternal purification from sins. And by faith, they can experience this complete forgiveness of all sins and complete cleansing from all sins. That's the heavenly calling. Come into this New Testament. Come into this new covenant. Look what Hebrews 8, 1 through 6 says about heaven. It says, now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne, the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by a mere human being. All right. This is why it becomes very, very vital, extremely important that before a person studies Hebrews, they must read the book of Exodus. They must read the book of Leviticus, and they probably need to read it over and over and over again and get Exodus into their minds, especially the setting up of the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, and then Leviticus. Because if not, all of these words that we're about to read are really going to simply be, what is all this about? It's not going to make sense. But if I've got Exodus in my head and I've got Leviticus in my head and I've really got Deuteronomy in my mind and I'm established in those books, then I can understand what this writer is writing. He says, we, the Jewish people, do have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, that takes us back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Why did Jesus, the Son, sit down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven? Because he provided purification from sins. All right. That had never been done before because, remember, the high priest in the book of Leviticus, they could never sit down because purification for sins were never complete. But when Jesus, the final high priest, Leviticus had come to an end, is what the writer of Hebrews is seeking to convince the Jewish people. He sat down, unlike the other priest and high priest, Jesus sat down because his work was done. He provided complete and total, full forgiveness of sins and complete cleansing from sins. And that's what purification from sins is. So the writer of Hebrews says, we, the Jewish people, do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now he's referring back to the latter chapters of Exodus when Moses set up the first tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and it was set up by a man on earth. But the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't relate to God through this earthly tabernacle anymore that was now in Jerusalem. See, the people of Hebrews, they were going to the temple in Jerusalem and to the priest in Jerusalem and then the high priest once a year with the, with the Day of Atonement, they were continuing to practice the law of Moses as defined in Exodus and as defined in Leviticus and as defined in Deuteronomy. 
And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 you're, that's not your high priest anymore. Jesus is the high priest. He's the final high priest. He's the final sacrifice. And Jesus, as the final high priest, does not serve in the sanctuary, the earthly temple in Jerusalem, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. Jesus serves at the tabernacle in heaven, not the one on earth. That's his point here. Verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, talking about Jesus, being the final high priest, to offer his blood for the sacrifice of sins. It, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. He offered himself for the complete forgiveness of sins. That's at the end of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. If Jesus were on earth... He would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. So the law was an earthly ministry. The old covenant is an earthly ministry performed by mere human beings. The new covenant is a heavenly ministry that's been established by Jesus in his blood. That's the heavenly calling. He's calling, the heavenly calling is this. The writer of Hebrews is calling them away from the earthly ministry going on in Jerusalem. He's calling them away from the earthly high priest, from the earthly priest, from the earthly sacrifice for sins, from the earthly temple. They have a heavenly calling. They're being called to this heavenly ministry of Jesus, which is the new covenant established in his blood. If Jesus, verse 4, were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law on earth. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. What is in heaven? It's the new covenant, the very presence of God. The dwelling place of God is in heaven, not on earth. The temple in Jerusalem is not the real dwelling place of God. It was only a copy. That's what it's saying here. The temple in Jerusalem was only a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven, the real dwelling place of God, which is where Jesus sat down and where the, he ministers the new covenant to people. All right, the earthly priests, verse 5, serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven, and that copy and shadow was the temple in Jerusalem. All right, that is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. This is at, in, in the latter chapters of Exodus. He was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, ultimately the temple that's in Jerusalem. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on this mountain. So Moses received the law, how the tabernacle was to be constructed. It was a replica on earth of the presence of God in heaven. All right. But now they're being called away from this earthly ministry of the law, and they're being called to this heavenly ministry of grace, the new covenant of grace that Jesus established. Verse 6, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received, this is the heavenly ministry of the New Testament, the heavenly ministry of this new covenant in his blood, a, a new way of relating to God, this new covenant ministry. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, theirs being the old covenant of law that the priest managed. The ministry of Jesus, this new covenant of grace, is superior to the earthly covenant 
of the earthly priest. The ministry of Jesus that he's received is as superior to theirs as the covenant or the testament of which he is the mediator, which is superior to the old one, since the new covenant or the new testament is established on better promises. So what are the better promises of the new testament or the new covenant established in the blood of Jesus? What's the promise of complete cleansing of all sins? It's the promise of the full forgiveness of all sins. It's the promise that God will know us from the least to the greatest. So these are better promises. These are eternal promises. Whereas the practices of the old covenant of law on earth were very temporal, temporal cleansing from sin, temporal forgiveness of sins. But the promises of the new covenant or the New Testament established in the blood of Jesus is eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal cleansing from sins. And the writer of Hebrews puts forgiveness and cleansing into one word. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it calls it purification from sins. That's eternal forgiveness, and that's eternal cleansing. And after Jesus provided eternal cleansing of sin and eternal forgiveness of sins, eternal purification, he sat down in heaven beside the right hand of the majesty. All right, Hebrews 9, 23 through 26. Let's look what this says about heavenly calling or the heavenly ministry of Jesus, this new covenant. Hebrews 9, 23 through 26 says, It was necessary then for the copies, that's the Jerusalem temple on earth, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, the heavenly things being the dwelling place of God in heaven, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these because of the blood of Jesus. Notice the emphasis on heavenly things, heavenly things. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. Jesus did not take his blood into the temple in Jerusalem after his, he was sacrificed on the cross. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was only a copy of the true one. The Jerusalem temple was only a copy of the real dwelling place of God in heaven. Rather, Jesus entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Verse 25, nor did Jesus enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When Jesus was sacrificed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, he took his blood into heaven itself. He didn't take his blood into the temple in Jerusalem like the earthly priest did. He took his blood into heaven itself before God in God's presence for us, for all of humanity, God, God is saying, this is my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of every person in the world from the sin of Adam to the last sin committed on earth. So it's like Jesus going before God the Father and say, God, th this is my blood shed for the cleansing of Brad's sins. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of Brad's sins. This is my blood shed for the purification of all of Brad's sins, from the moment he's born into this earth until he takes his last breath from this earth, my blood was shed for his forgiveness. 
My blood was shed for his cleansing. And the day I place my faith in Jesus, then that cleansing becomes mine. That forgiveness becomes mine. It's eternal cleansing and it's eternal forgiveness in this new covenant. And the same with you as well. Notice what verse 25 says, nor did Jesus enter heaven, the emphasis here, heaven, to offer himself again and again the way the high priest on earth enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. If Jesus had to secure more forgiveness for sins, then he would have to come back and die for each person's sin individually, and he would always be coming to die on the cross. It would be never ending. He can never sit down. From the moment Adam was first sinned until the last person who has sinned, if Jesus' blood didn't cover all the sins into the past and all the sins into the future, then he would have to die individually for everybody's sin for the rest of our time on earth. But with Jesus' one sacrifice for sin, for all people and for all time, he took his blood and he entered into heaven itself. Not the earthly tabernacle in Jerusalem. That was a copy of heaven. He entered into the very presence of God with his own blood to secure the eternal forgiveness for humanity and the eternal cleansing from sin for humanity. And when any individual person places their faith in Jesus, then they receive eternal cleansing from sin and eternal forgiveness from sins. That's the new covenant. That's the new Testament that Jesus went to the cross to establish. Look at Hebrews 12, 18 through 27, as it refers to heaven. This is a contrast, Hebrews 12, 18 through 27, between law and in grace between the old covenant of law or the old testament of law and the new testament of grace hebrews 12 18 through 21 is the old covenant of law all right hebrews 12 22 through 24 is the new testament of grace now i want us to see the contrast that the writer of hebrews is drawing between the emotions and the feelings of what the old covenant of law brings and then the emotions and feelings of what the person who is living in the new covenant of grace, what they feel in the new covenant of grace. So let's look at Hebrews 12, 18 through 21 of what the writer of Hebrews writes about this earthly ministry of the law. All right. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is in reference to when God gave the law to Moses on earth. And Moses had gone up the mountain, Mount Sinai, And the mountain couldn't be touched. If the mountain was touched, those who touched the mountain would die. Even an animal would die, stoned to death. It was a time of darkness. It was a time of death and darkness, despair, fear. When the law was given to Moses, there was no joy. There was only darkness, gloom, death despair, fear. It was terrifying in verse 21. The sight was so terrifying 
that even Moses, who received the law, said, I am trembling with fear. This is the earthly ministry of the law. And the writer of Hebrews is calling them away from the earthly ministry of the law that is dark and gloomy and terrifying and produces death to the heavenly ministry of the new covenant of grace. Look at this amazing contrast, y'all. It says, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly, there's the word, the heavenly Jerusalem. Write down Galatians chapter 4. Because Paul speaks about the heavenly Jerusalem in contrast to the earthly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem represented the law in Galatians 4. The heavenly Jerusalem represented grace in Galatians 4. So we're talking about two covenants. One covenant is represented by the earthly city of Jerusalem. That's the old covenant of law, which produces death. The other covenant is represented by the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the new covenant of grace. Now look at the contrast here. It's, it's amazing. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the city of God, the heavenly city of God is a city of grace. The heavenly Jerusalem, remember Revelation 22, the heavenly Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth. It's the city of grace. All right. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands and thousands of angels. Look at this. In joyful assembly. You see the difference between law and grace? Grace produces joyful assembly. Why? Because people are full of joy because all their sins have been forgiven. And this is what they were being called to. They were being called to the new covenant, to the ministry of the heavenly Jerusalem, the the ministry of grace that, that Jesus had established in his blood, to this joyful assembly. Even the angels are full of joy over the new covenant of grace, though they were the mediators of the law. They're full of joy over the new covenant of grace. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. The word assembly may make you think of back in Hebrews chapter 10. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, it's talking about a group of believers coming together to celebrate the new covenant. That's the calling there in do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Come together and celebrate this new covenant together. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly because of what the blood of Christ has done for humanity. To the church of the firstborn, the firstborn being Jesus, not the firstborn as in a physical birth. Firstborn here in the Jewish language means the head of the church, the leader of the church, the one who's over the church. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God in this heavenly Jerusalem, the city of grace. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. See, those in this new covenant have been made righteous in the sight of God. We've been made perfect in the sight of God because of the blood of Jesus. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you, do you see this here? That the heavenly Jerusalem is Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That, that's what the joyful, that's why the angels are singing in joy. They're singing in celebration of Jesus's establishment of the new covenant in his blood. And that's, that's where we want to worship. That's where how we want to relate to God is through this new covenant of grace where we're assured that we're forgiven of all sin. We're assured that we're cleansed from all sin because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground that Cain was guilty. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because the blood of Jesus cries out that you are innocent, you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless, you are perfect, because his blood provided purification for all sins. And when a person places their faith in Jesus, they receive full forgiveness, they receive complete cleansing, and it's for eternity because this is an eternal covenant. All right, now look what verse 25 says. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Who, who is speaking? The blood of Jesus. Don't refuse the blood of Jesus. And he's telling the people of Hebrews in AD 65, stop worshiping at the earthly Jerusalem. Stop worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Because that ministry is obsolete. That ministry is done. That ministry is filled with darkness and death and fear and is terrorizing because nobody can obey the law. Come to the new Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, where there's celebration of what the blood of Christ has done on behalf of humanity. See to it that you, the Jewish people, do not refuse him who speaks by continuing to reject Jesus and remain loyal to Moses and the law of Moses. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? That's the heavenly calling. This is the heavenly calling. It's the calling to leave behind the law of Moses. It's the calling to leave behind the earthly ministry that was happening in Jerusalem. Leave behind sacrificing animals. Leave behind the high priest and the day of atonement. Leave behind the priestly ministries that go on day after day after day because Jesus' ministry is a heavenly ministry and it's, it's a ministry that's superior because it's built on better promises and it's a heavenly ministry that took place in the very presence of God when he took his blood before God himself for our complete cleansing from sin and our full forgiveness of sins. So verse 25 of chapter 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we, that's the Jewish people at this time, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven, turning away from the new covenant of grace, turning back to Moses. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The word once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. This is talking about the final judgment before this new heaven and the new earth is set up, and the heavenly city comes out of heaven to earth, 
and there's no more death, there's no more despair, there's no more darkness, there's no mourning, and there's no more crying. So he's warning the Jewish people, don't refuse the blood of Jesus. Don't reject the New Testament. Don't return to the law of Moses. Your loyalty is not to Moses. Come to faith in Jesus is what he's saying. So what is the heavenly calling as seen in the letter to the Hebrews? The heavenly calling is when Jesus, after providing purification for sins through his shed blood, Jesus sat down beside the majesty in heaven. And as a result, the Hebrew Jewish people were being called to leave behind the Old Testament, the old covenant of law of Moses at the earthly Jerusalem temple, to to leave behind the law of Moses where they continually pursued purification for sins, and now to live in the new covenant of the grace of Jesus where Jesus has eternally provided purification for sins. The heavenly calling was for the Hebrew people to rest by faith in the finished work of Jesus by no longer carrying out the earthly sacrificial system found in the book of Leviticus. The heavenly calling is Jesus entering heaven with his blood one time for all people, for all sins, to secure our eternal forgiveness and to secure our complete cleansing from sins. The heavenly calling was for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to stop the earthly sacrifices at the earthly temple in Jerusalem, these sacrifices being made at the earthly temple in Jerusalem by the priest on earth that are associated with the Old Testament of law. And the heavenly calling is to start focusing on Jesus, fix your thoughts on Jesus, start focusing on Jesus and what he did through his blood So this heavenly calling is to start focusing on Jesus who offered himself as the final sacrifice for all sins, for all people, and for all time to secure eternal forgiveness for all sins and eternal cleansing from all sin. The heavenly calling was for the Jewish people to fix their thoughts on Jesus' grace and not on Moses' law. So what does it mean then to share in this heavenly calling. Does the word share indicate that some had come to faith in Jesus and they were experiencing together the New Testament of grace? Or does the word share mean that the heavenly calling was for the Jewish people who had been set apart by God to experience the New Testament together? In the context, that's Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 11. This is just my view. I believe the writer of Hebrews is telling his Jewish audience when using the word share that the heavenly calling of the New Testament of grace is for them. God has provided this New Testament of grace in the blood of Jesus. He shared the New Testament of grace with them. And they enter into this New Testament of grace, this heavenly calling. The heavenly calling is the New Testament of grace. And they enter into the New Testament of grace by resting in the work of Jesus through faith in Jesus. Here's an illustration that I would use for this. If a mother has been in the house and cooking dinner for the children, and the children are all out playing, and the mother goes to the door and she calls to the children, hey, dinner's ready. They all share in the calling. 
All right, the calling is for everyone. I'm calling everyone. They, they all share in the calling. But that doesn't mean simply because they all share in the calling that everyone's going to answer the call and go eat of the meal. All right. Some may come in and eat of the meal and some may stay out and not eat of the meal. But what they're sharing in is the calling. And that's what I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, that all of the Jewish people have been called they share in this calling. They share in the calling, and they're being called to eat and drink of this new covenant of grace. Now, do you remember when Jesus was in the upper room, and he was with his disciples? And he said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Eat of my body and drink of my blood. All right. That's the idea here. The Jewish people share in the calling. They're all being called to come to the new covenant of grace. They're all being called to eat of the body of Christ, to drink of the blood of Christ. And that's being used figuratively by Jesus. And how do you eat of the body of Christ? How do you drink of the blood of Christ? It's by faith. It's trusting. It's believing. So the calling is for everyone. They all share in the calling, but it doesn't mean they're all eating of the meal. They're not all by faith, trusting in what Jesus has done. That's why you see in the rest of Hebrews, he's seeking to bring them to rest in the finished work of Christ because they're rebelling to the finished work of Christ by continuing to live according to the law of Moses. Hey, I want to thank you for listening to this teaching today. If you enjoy these teachings, you may also enjoy the resources on my website, gracereach.org, and you may also enjoy my books, which are available on Amazon. I also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page, and you can find the links to all my resources and the details of this podcast teaching. If you'd like to support my ministry in reaching more and more people with the good news of God's grace and teaching more and more people about His grace, Click the donate button on the Grace Reach website, again, which is gracereach.org. Hey, thank you guys so much for listening to this teaching today. I pray that through these teachings, you are understanding the Bible more fully and you're understanding God's grace more clearly. Have a great day.